power hose here. The insanity of Jones, a study in reincarnation by Algernon Blackwood. Adventures come to the adventurous and mysterious things fall in the way of those who with wonder and imagination are to watch for them. But the majority of people to go past the doors are half a jarsh, thinking them closed and fail to notice the faint stirrings of a great curtain that hangs ever in the form of appearances between them and the world of causes behind. For only the few whose inner senses have been quickened presents by some strange suffering in the depths of a natural temperament bequeathed from a remote past comes the knowledge not to welcome that the greater world lies ever at their elbow. At any moment of a chance combination of moods and forces may invite them to cross the fit shifting frontier. Some, however, are born with this awful certainty in their hearts and are called to no apprenticeship as this subject uh, uh, to this selected company Jones undoubtedly belonged. In his life he realised that his senses brought to him merely a more or less interesting set of shame. Appearances of space as man measure it was utterly misleading at time as the clock ticked in succession in minutes was utterly nonsense. In fact, that all his sensory perceptions were but a clumsy representation of real things behind the curtain, things he was forever trying to get at, that sometimes he actually did get at. He always been trembling aware that he stood on the borderland of another region, a region where time and space were many forms of thought, where modern, where ancient memories lay open to the sight, where the forces behind each human life stood plainly revealed. He would see the hidden springs of every heart of the world. Moreover, the fact that he was a clerk in a fire insurance office and did his work with strict attention never allowed him to forget that for one moment that just behind the dingy brick walls were hundreds of men scribbled with pointed pens beneath the electric lamps. He existed this glorious region where the important part of himself dwelt and moved had it, had it been. For this for in this region he pictures them playing the part of a spectator to his ordinary walk of day life, watching like a king the stream of events, but untouched in his own soul by the dirt, the noise, the vulgar commotion of the outer, other, outer world. This is no poetic dream, merely Jones was not playing, playing prettily with idealism to amuse himself. It was a living, working belief to convince he was that the external world was a result of a vast deception practised upon him by the gross senses he had stared at the great building like St. Paul's. He felt it would not very much surprise him to see suddenly quiver like a shape of a jelly and then melt, away, utterly, melt utterly away while in its place stood while in its place stood all at once revealed a mass of colour or the great Incarnation vibrations or a splendid sound the a spiritual idea which is represented in stone for something in his, this way it was this his mind worked yet to all appearances with satisfaction all business claims Jones was normal and enterprising he felt nothing but contempt for the wave of modern psychism he 
hardly knew the meaning of the, such words as clay advance and clay dance. He never felt the least desire to join the flow physiological society to speculate in the theories of actual plain life or the elementals. He attended no meetings at the Paranormal Research Society and knew no anxiety as to whether his aura was black or blue, nor was he conscious of the slightest which to mix in with a rival cheap occultism which proves so attractive to weak minds and mystical tendencies unleashed imaginations. There were certain things he knew, but none he could or cared to argue about. He shrank instinctively from attempting to put names to contents this other region. Knowing well that such names would only limit and define things that according to which that any standards in use in the ordinary world were simply undefinable and elusive. So, that although was the way in his mind worked, was clearly a very strong living of common sense in Jones. In a word, the man, the world, and Elphis knew as Jones was Jones. The man they named summed up and labelled him correctly, John Enberly Jones. Among the things he knew and therefore never cared to speak or speculate about, one was that he plainly saw himself as inheritor of a long series of past lives, a net result of painful evolution, always as himself, of course, but in numerous different bodies, each determination by the behaviour of the preceding one. The present John Jones was the last result of a date of all the previous thinking, feeling and doing of John Jones in earlier days, bodies and, and other centuries. He pretended not to, to no details, nor claimed distinguished ancestry, for he realised in his past must have been utterly commonplace and insignificant to produce his presence. But he was just as sure he'd been at this very game for ages that he breathed, and he had never occurred to him to argue or to doubt or to ask questions. And one result of his belief was that his thoughts dwelt from the past rather than upon the future. He read such history and felt especially drawn to certain periods where spirit he understood instinctively as though he lived in them. He found all religions uninteresting because, without, almost without exception, they start from the present and speculate ahead to what man shall become instead of being looking back and speculating why men have got there as they got here as they are. In his insurance office, he did his work exceedingly well, without much personal ambition. Men and women he regarded as impersonal instruments for inflicting upon the, him the pain or pleasure he earned by his past workings, a chance and no place in his scheme for things of all. While he recognised the practical world could not get along unless every man did his work thoroughly and consequently, he took no interest in the accumulation of fame or money for himself, and simply, therefore, did his plain duty with indifference as, as to results. In common with the others who led a strictly personal life, he possessed a quality utter bravery, and was always ready to face any combination of circumstances, no matter how terrible, because he saw in them the just working out of past causes he, he had himself set in motion, which did not be, could not be dodged or modified, and where, whereas the majority of men, people, have well mean, little meaning for him, neither by way of attraction or repulsion. The moment he saw so, come on, 
with whom he felt his past had been vitally interwoven, his whole inner being leapt up instantly and shouted the fact in his face. He regulated his life with the utmost skill and caution, like a sentry on march for an enemy whose feet could already be heard approaching. Thus, while, while the great majority of men and women left him under influence, since he regarded them as many souls merely passing from with him along this great stream of evolution, there were here and there individuals whom he recognised this that his smallest intercourse was of the gravest importance. These were pe- persons for whom he knew in every fibre of his being he had accounts to settle, pleasant or otherwise, arising out of dealings in the past lives and into his relationships with those few. Therefore, he considered it as if they, if as it were the efforts of most people spread over their intercourse with a great and a far greater number. By that means, he picked out of these few individuals, only these conversant with the startling process of the subconscious memory, may say. The point was that, Miss, that Jones believed the main purpose, if not quite the entire purpose, of his present incarnation lay in his faithful and thorough settling of these accounts. And if he sought to evade the last detail of such settling, no matter how pleasant, he would have to live in vain and return to his next incarnation with his added duty to perform. But according to his beliefs, there was no chance. There could be no utter shirking and avoid the problem with merely to waste time and lose opportunities for development. There, there was only there was one individual whom Jones had long understood clearly he had a very large account to settle, and towards the accomplishment of which all the main currents of his being seemed to bear him with a serving purpose. For, when he first entered the insurance office as a junior clerk ten years before, and through a glass door caught sight of this man seated in a room, one of his sudden overwhelming flashes of intuitive memory had burst up into him from the depths he seen as a flame of blinding light, a symbolic picture of the future rising out of a dreadful past he he had without any act of defined violation marked down this man for a real account to be settled with that man i shall have much to do he said to himself as he noted the big face look up and meet his eyes through the glass there is something i cannot shirk a vital revelation out of the past of both of us went to his desk trembling a little with shaking knees, as though the memory of some terrible pain had suddenly laid his icy hand upon his heart and touched the scar of a great horror. It was at this moment genuine terror. When his eyes, their eyes had met through the glass door, he was conscious of inward shrinking and loathing that seized upon him with great violence and convinced him in a single second that a setting with his account would almost perhaps more than he could manage. A man in vision passed as swiftly as it came, dropping back again into the submerged region of his, self, his subconsciousness. But he never forgot it. The whole of his life, therefore, became a sort of natural, natural, though undeliberate preparation for the fulfilment of the great duty when the time should be ripe. In those days, ten years ago, this man was assistant manager, but since then had been promoted as manager to one of the company's local branches, and soon afterwards Jones had likewise found himself transferred to the same branch. A little later, again the branch of Liverpool, one of the most important, 
had been in peril owing to the mismanagement and defalcification. The man had gone to take charge of it. Again, by mere chance, apparently, Jones had been promoted to the same place, and his pursuit of the persistent manager continued for several years, often too in the most curious fashion. Although Jones had never exchanged a single word of him, or had or been so much as noticed indeed by the great man, a clerk understood perfectly well that these moves in the game were all part of a deliberate purpose. Never for one moment did he doubt that the invisibles behind a veil were slowly and surely arranging the details of it all, so it lead up to suitably to the climax, determined by justice, a climax in which he himself and the manager would play the leading roles. It is inevitable, he said to himself. I feel it may be terrible. And when the moment comes, I shall be ready. I pray to God I shall face it properly and act like a man. Moreover, as the years passed and nothing happened, as he felt the horror closing in upon him with steady increase, for the fact was Jones hated and loathed the manager with intensity of feeling. He never before experienced towards any human being. He shrank from his presence and from the glance of his eyes as though he remembered to have suffered nameless cruelties at his hands. And he slowly began to realise, moreover, that the matter to be settled between them was one of them of very ancient standing, and the nature of the settlement was to discharge of accumulated punishment, which had probably been very dreadful in the manner of its fulfilment. When their father, Clash Chief Cafier, one day informed him that a man was to be in London again, this time a general manager of the head office, and said he was charged to find a private secretary for him, for among the best clerks, a further imitated that the selection had fallen upon himself, Jones accepted the promotion quietly, fatalistically, yet with a degree of inward loathing, hardly as to be described. For he saw this merely mo- another move in the evolution of the inevitable double. Nemesis, which he simply dared not speak to frustrate any personal consideration. At the same time, he was conscious of a certain feeling of relief that his offence of waiting might soon be regretted. A secret sense of satisfaction, therefore, accompanied the unpleasant change, and Jones was able to hold himself perfectly well in a hand when it's carried into effect. He, he formally introduced as a private secretary to the general manager. And the manager was a large, fat man with a very red face and bags beneath his eyes. Being short-sighted, he wore glasses and seemed to magnify his eyes, which always a blood to bloodshot in hot weather. A sort of thin slime covered his cheeks, he perspired easily. His head was almost entirely bald. Over, tur- his, uh, over his turned-down collar, his great neck folded into two six reddish clubs, of flesh, his hands are big and his fingers almost massive in fingers. He is an excellent business of sane judgment, the firm will without enough imagination to confuse him his course of action by showing him possible alternatives. His integrity and ability caused him to be held in universal respect by the world of business and finance. In important regions of a man's character, however, and the heart he is coarse, brutal, almost a savagery, without consideration for others. As a result, Autocrity and justice, helpless subordinates. In moments of temper, which were not infrequent, his face turned a dull purple, while the top of his bald head shone by contrast, like white marble, and the bags under his eyes swelled, like he seemed they would, ever, would presently explode with a pop. At these times, he presented a distinctly repulsive appearance. But, uh, but to a private secretary like Jones, who did his duty regardless of whether his boy was beast or angel, 
These men springs of birth was principle, not to motion. This this made little difference within the, the narrow limits of which any one could satisfy such a man. He pleased the general manager, and more than once his piercing intuitive fancy, amounting almost to clairvoyance, assisted the chief in fashion that served to bring the two closer together. It might otherwise have been the case that caused the man to respect in his assistant a power of which he possessed not even the germ himself. It was a curious relationship that grew up between two. A cashier enjoyed the credit of having made a selection, profited by indirectly as much as anyone else. As for some time, the work of the office continued normally, and very possibly John Elderber Jones received a good salary in the outward appearance of the two chief characters in his history. There was little change noticeably, except that the manager grew fatter and redder, and the secretary observed that his own hair was beginning to show rather rather greyish at the temples. There were, however, two changes in progress. Uh, both had to do with Jones an important dimension. One that was began to retrieve evilly. In the region of deep sleep, the possibility of significant dreaming first developed itself. He was tormented more and more with vivid scenes and pictures of which a tall, thin man, dark and sinister countenance, with bad eyes, was closely associated with himself. Only his setting was that of the past age, with costumes of centuries gone by, and scenes had to do with dead, dreadful cruelties that could not belong to modern life as he knew it. The other change was significant, but not so easy to describe. He had, in fact, become aware that some new portion of himself, hitherto unwakened, had stirred slowly into life out of the very depths of his consciousness. This new part of himself amounted almost to another personality. He never observed at least at least manifestation but a strange thrill at his heart. For he understood that he had become begun to watch the manager. It's a habit of Jones since he was compelled to work among conditions which were utterly distasteful to withheld Joy's hand, wholly from business, once the day was over. During office hours, he kept the strictest possible watch upon himself and turned the key on all inner dreams, lest any sudden outrush from the depths should interfere with his duty. And once the working day was over, the gates flew open and he began to enjoy himself. He read no bottom books of the subjects that interested him. And as already said, he followed no course of training, not belonged to any society that dabbled with half-told mysteries, but once released from the office desk in the manager's room, he simply and actually entered in another realm because he was an old inhabitant, a rightful dissident, and because he belonged there. It, is, it was, in fact, really a case of dual personality, a carefully drawn arrangement between Jones of the fire insurance office and Jones of the mysteries, of the terms of which... Under heavy penalties, neither region claimed him out of hours. But the moment he reached his rooms upon the roof in Bloomsbury, he changed his city coat to another. The iron doors of the office clanged far behind him, and front before his very eyes rolled up the beauty grew gates of ivory. He entered the palace places of flowers and singing, and wonderful veiled forms. Sometimes he quite, he quite lost touch with the outer world, forgetting to eat his dinner or go to bed. And lay in a state of trance, his consciousness working far out of the body. On other occasions, he walked the street on the air, half way between two regions, 
unable to distinguish between incarnate and discarnate forms, not very far, probably beyond the stature where poets, saints, and greatest artists had moved and thought they found their inspiration. But this was only when some insistent bodily, bodily claim prevented his full release. More often than he was entirely independent of his physical proportion, free for the real region without let or hindrance. One evening he reached home totally exhausted upon the burden of the day's work. A manager had been more and more, more than usually brutal. Unjust, ill-tempered, and Jones had been almost persuaded out of his unsettled policy of contentment into answering him back. Everything seemed to have gone amiss. A man's course of red nature had been in an ascendant all day long. He felt the death with his great fists of bruised found fault and reasonably uttered outrageous things and behaved generally as he actually was beneath the way veil of acquired business finish. He had done and said everything to well, wound all that was vulnerable in an ordinary secretary, though Jones fortunately dwelt in a region from which he looked upon, down upon such a man as he might look down on the blundering of a savage animal. The strain was nevertheless told severely upon him as he reached home, wandering for the first time in his life, wherever there was perhaps a point in his life, wherever there was perhaps a, there was a point beyond which he was unable to restrain himself any longer. But something out of the usual had happened. At the close of the passage, the great stretch between the two, every nerve in the stroke of his body tingling with undeserved abuse. Imagine a sunny turn full upon him, in the corner of the private room where the safe stood, in such a way that he, glare his red eyes, magnified by the glasses, looked straight in his own. At this very second, the other per- personality in Jones, the one that was ever watching, rose up swiftly from the depths within and held a mirror to his face. A moment of flame and vision rushed upon him, and for one single second, one merciless sound, second in clear sight, he saw the manager as a tall, dark man of all of his evil dreams, and nodded that he suffered in his hands. Some awful injury in the past clashed through his mind like the report of a cannon. It all flashed upon him as gone, challenging, challenging, challenging him from fire to ice, and ran back again to fire. He left the office with certain conviction. His heart, the time, was final settlement. With a man, the time was inevitably recuperated, was at last drawing near. According to this invariable custom, however, he succeeded in putting the memory of all the unpleasantness out of his mind with the charging of his office coat, and after dozing a little on his leather chair before the fire, he started out as usual for dinner at a Soho French restaurant, and again dreamed himself again in the region of flowers and singing, to communicate with the visibles, the very sources of his real life and being. It was, that, it was in this way that his mind worked, a habit of years of crystallised rigid lines along which is now necessary and inevitable, him to act. At the door of the little restaurant he stopped short, a half-remembered appointment in his mind. He had made an arrangement with someone, but where, whom, whom, had tightly slipped his memory. He thought it was for dinner, or else he'd meet them after dinner, and a second it came back to him. It was something to do with the office, but wherever it was, he quite unable to recall it. A reference in his pocket, a gazement book, showed up only a black page. Eventually, he had even admitted to enter it, after staying a moment vainly trying to recall either the time, place, or person, he went in and sat down. Without the details that 
But though the details escaped him, his subconscious memory seemed to know all about it. We experienced a sudden sinking in the heart, accompanied by a sense of foreboding apprehension, and felt beneath his exhaustion where lay a centre of tremendous excitement. The emotion caused by his occasion was at work, and would presently cause the actual details appointment to reappear. Inside the restaurant, the feeling increased instead of passing. Someone was waiting for him somewhere, someone whom he had definitely arranged to meet. He expected by a person that very night, and that was the very time. But by whom, where, a curious inner trembling came over him, and he made a strong effort to hold himself in hand and be ready for anything that come, might come. Then suddenly he came to knowledge that the place at the point was this very restaurant, and further, the person he promised to meet was he there, waiting, somewhere quite close beside him. He looked up nervously and began to examine the faces around him. The majority of the diners were Frenchmen, clattering loudly with such gesturation and laughter. There was a fair sprinkling of clerics like himself, who came to, because the price is low and the food good. There was no single face that he recognised until his glance upon the article in the corner seat, opposite, generally filled by himself. There's the man who, who's waiting for me, thought Jones instantly. He knew it was what... He knew it at once. The man he saw was sitting well back in the corner, a thick overcoat buttoned tightly by the chin. His skin was very white, and a heavy black beard grew far over his cheeks. At first, the secretary took, took him for a stranger. Then he looked up, and his eyes met. A sense of familiarity flashed across him, and for a second or two, Jones imagined he was staring at a man he had known years before. But borrowing a beard, his face was an elderly clerk who had got by the next text to dome when he first entered the surface of the insurance company. He's shown in the most painstaking kindness and sympathy. In the only difficulties his work, but a, mo- a moment later the illusion passed. He remembered that Fulf had been dead at least five years. The similarity of their eyes were obviously a mere suggested trick of memory. Two men stared at each other for several seconds. Then Jones began to act instinctively, and because of, he had to, he crossed over and took the vacant seat at the other's table. Facing him for he felt it was somehow imperative to explain why he was late, how he was almost had forgotten the engagement altogether. No minus excuse, however, came from his assistance, for his mind had begun to work fervently. Yes, you are late, said the man quietly, because he could before he could find a single word to utter. It doesn't matter. Also, you've forgotten the appointment, but it makes no difference either. I knew there was there was an arrangement, Joe stammered, passing of his hand over his forehead. But somehow, you will recall it presently, continued the other, in a gentle voice, smiling a little. In deep sleep last night, we arranged this, and the unpleasant occurrences today have for the moment obliterated it. A faint memory stirred for him as a man spoke. A grove of trees, a vanishing form, hovered between his eyes, and then vanished again. One instant the stranger seemed to be incapable of self-detortion, and assumed vast proportions with wonderful flaming eyes. Ah, he crossed. It was then it was there in the other region. Oh, of course, said the other, with a smile that illuminated his own face. You remember presently, all in good time. And meanwhile you have no cause to feel afraid. There's a wonderful swimming quality in the man's voice, like a whisping of a great wind, and the clerk felt calmer at once. They sat a little while longer. 
He could not remember they had talked as much or had anything. He only called afterwards that a head waiter come up and whispered something in his ear. He glanced around and saw that other people were look, looking at him in curiosity, some of them laughing, and his companion then got up and led the way out to the restaurant. He walked hurriedly through the streets, neither of them speaking. Jones was intent upon getting back the whole history affair. The region of deep sleep he barely noticed the way he took. It is clear he knew that he was bound to just as well as his companion, for he crossed the street, often ahead of him, driving down alleys without hesitation. The others and the other followed always without correction. The pavements were very, were very full and usually right. Usual night crowds of London were surging to and fro and glare at short lights, but somehow no one impeded their rapid movements. They seemed to pass through the body as people as if they were smoke. They went into as they went to processions of traffic grew less and less. They soon passed the mansion house, inserted space in front of the Royal Exchange, and so down the Fentridge Street in sight of the Tower of London rising dim and shadowy in the smoky air. Jones remembered all this perfectly well. Thought it was intense preoccupation that made the distance seem so short, but it was it was when the tower was left behind. They turned northwards that he began to notice how altered everything was, and saw they were in a neighbourhood whose houses were suddenly scarce and lanes of fields beginning. The only light was the stars overhead. As the deeper consciousness more and more asserted itself, it spoke conclusion of surface happening things. As his mere body during the day a sense of exhaustion vanished. He realised he was moving somewhere in the region, of course. Of course, it's behind the veil. Beyond the gross deceptions of the senses and released from the clumsy spell of time and space. Without great surprise, therefore, he turned and saw his companion had ordered and shed his overcoat and black hat and were moving beside him. Absolutely without sound, for a brief second he saw him towards a tree extending through space like a great shadow, misty and wavering on the outline followed by a sound like wings in the darkness, but he had stopped far, fear clutching his heart. The other resumed his former proportions, and James could plainly see the other, his normal outline, uh, amongst the green field again, behind. Then a second he saw him fumbling at his neck. At the same moment the black beard came away in, from the face of his hand. There you are, Thorpe, he grasped, yet somehow without overwhelming surprise. He stood facing one of our in lonely lane trees, meeting overhead, heading, hiding the stars, and a sound of mournful sighing among the branches. I am Falk, was the answer to the voice, that almost seemed part of the wind. And I have come out of the par- far past to help you, for I bet to you is large, and in this life I have had but small opportunity to obey. Jones thought quickly of the man's kindness to him in the office. A great wave of feeling surged through through him as he began to remember dimly the friend by whose side he already climbed, perhaps through vast ages of his soul evolution. To help me now, he whispered, you will understand me when you entered into your real memory, and recall how debt how great a debt I have to pay for the old faithfulness faithful kindness of, of long ago, sighed the other in a voice like falling wind. But between us, though no, there was no question of debt. Jones heard himself saying, remembered the flight. They floated him on the air, a smile and lighted for a moment the stone eyes facing him. Not a debt indeed, but of a privilege. Jones felt his heart leap out towards this man. His old friend tried to by centuries and still faithful. He made a movement to seize his hand. 
The others shifted like a finger thrust, and for a moment the clerk's head swam. His eyes seemed to fail. Then you are dead, he said under his breath with a slight shiver. Five years ago, I left the body you knew, replied Philip. I tried to help you in simply not fully recognising you. You now, But now I can accomplish far more. The awful, the awful sense of foreboding and dreading to heart. Certainly beginning to understand. It was you, it has to be with, it has to do with your past dealing with the imaginer, was the answer as the wind came loud among the branches overhead. I carried off the reminder of the sentence, remainder of the sentence in the air. Treasure's memory, which was beginning to stir among the deepest layers of all, shut down suddenly with a snap. He followed his companion over the fields, down sweet smelling lanes where the air was fragrant and cool. Well, they came to large houses, standing great, gaunt and lonely, and shadows at the edge of the hit wood. It was wrapped in utter stillness, with windows heavily draped in black and clerk, and he looked, felt such an overpowering wave of sadness, evading that his eyes began to burn and smart. He was conscious of a desire to shed tears. The key made a sharp noise. He turned the lock, and the door swung open to a lofty hall. They heard a confused sound of rustling and whispering, the great throng of people pressing forward to meet them. The air seemed full of swaying movement, and Joseph certainly saw hands held aloft and dim faces claiming recognition, while his heart, already oppressed by the approaching burden of vast accumulated memories, he wailed the uncurling of something, keeping the sleep that had been asleep for ages. As he advanced, he heard the doors close, a muffled thunder behind them. He saw that the shadows seemed to retreat and smirk away towards the interior of the house, carrying the faces, hands of faces with them. He heard the wind singing around the walls. Over the roof, its wailing voices mingled with the sound of deep, collective breathing that filled the house, like a murmur of a sea. As he walked up to the board, a board staircase and through the vaulted rooms, the pillars arose like stems of trees. He knew the building was crowded, row upon row, with throwing memories of his long, own long bath. This is the house of the past, but it's thought behind it, beside him, as he moved silently from room to room. The house of your past is full from the cellar to the roof, in memories of what you've done, thought I felt from the earliest stages of the evolution until now. The house climbs almost to the clouds, and stretches back to the heart of the wood. You saw outside, but the main, main motor halls are filled with ghosts, and these is too many to count, even if we are able to awaken them. You could not remember them now. Some day, though, you will come and claim you, and you must know, you must know them and answer their questions, for they will never rest until they have, they have exhausted themselves again for you, and justice has been perfectly, perfectly worked out. But you now follow me closely, you shall, and you shall see particular memory from which I am prevented to be your guide, so that you may know and understand the great force of your present life, and may use the sword of justice, or rise to level of great forgiveness, according to your degree of power. I see thrills run through the trembling clerk. As he walked slowly beside his companion, he heard from the vaults below, as well as from the more distant regions, a vast building, the stirring and sighing, a shrewd shrieks of straight ranks of sleepers surrounding the still air like cold, swept in the unseen strings, stretched somewhere among the very foundations of the house, stealthily picking up their way along the great pillars. He moved up the smooth sleep, 
sweeping staircase and through several dark corridors and holes and presently stopped outside a small door in an archway where the shadows were very deep. Remain close to my side and remember to utter no cry, whispered the voice of his guide. As the clerk turned to reply, his face, his face, he saw his face was stern to witness, and even shone a little in the darkness. The room had entered seemed at first to be pitchy black, but gradually the secretary perceived a faint reddish glow among, among, against the further end, and thought he saw figures moving slightly to and fro. Now watch, whispered Thorpe, as he pressed close to the wall, near the door and waited, but remember to keep absolute silence is a torture it's a torture scene. Jones felt utterly afraid. Though he turned to fly fly he dare, if he dared too, for his indescribable terror seized him, his knees shook, but some power that made it that made him escape impossible held him remotely there. The eyes glued to the spots of light he crouched against the wall and waited. The figures began to move more swiftly, each in his own dim light, and shed no radiance. Beyond itself, and he heard a sloth crankling of chains, a voice of man groaning in pain. Then came the sound of door closing. There were therefore John Jones saw one figure, the figure of an old man, naked entirely, a fastened chains of an iron framework on the floor. His memory gave a sudden leave of fear. As he looked for the features of white beard were familiar. He called him as Nobody yesterday. The other figures had disappeared. The old man became the centre of the terrible picture. Slowly the ghastly groans as the heat below him increased into a slowly glow. The aged body rose in the curve of agony, resting on the iron frame only with the chains held wrists and ankles fast. Cries of grass filled the air, and Jones felt exactly as though they came from his own throat, as if the chains were burning in his own wrists and ankles, heat scorching the skin and flesh upon his own back. He began to wither and twist himself. Pain whispered a voice inside the four hundred years ago. A purpose? Grass of preferring. Clark, though he knew quite well what the answer must be, resort the name of a friend. In his death and betrayal came to reply from the darkness. A sliding panel opened. With a little rattle on the wall immediately above the rack, a face framed in the same red glow appeared and looked down upon the dying victim. Jones is only just able to choke a scream, for he recognised the tall, dark man of his dreams. With horrible, gloating eyes, gazed down upon the whipping form of the old man. His lips moved as in speaking through no words were actually audible. He asked again for the name, explained the other as the clerk struggled with intense hatred, a loathing for the fretted, threatened every moment to result in screams and action. His ankles and wrists pained him, and what he could scarcely keep still by the power, merciless power held him into the scene. <clears throat> he saw the old man with face cry, raise his tortured head, and spit into the face of the panel. Then the stutter slid back and again. A moment later, the increased glow beneath the body, accompanied by the awful writhing, told of the application of further heat. Then came the odour of burning flesh. A white beard curled and red and burned, as crisp as the body fell back limp upon the red hot iron, then shot up again in fresh agony. Cry after cry, the most awful in the world, rang out the deadened sound between the four walls. Again the panel slid back, creeping, and revealed the dreadful face of the torturer. The name the name was asked for. Again it was refused. This time after closing on the panel, the door opened and tall men 
Tall thin man with the evil face came slowly into the chamber. His features were savage with rage and disappointment and dead dull red clothes that fell upon he looked like a very prince of devils. In his hand he held a very uh, held a pointed iron at a white at white heat. Now the murder came from Thorpe. His whisper that sounded as if it's outside the building and far away. Jones quote, knew quite well what was coming, but was unable to close his eyes. He felt all the fearful pains so fell first, though he was actually a sufferer, but now stared as he felt something more besides. And when the tall man deliberately approached the rack and plunged the heated iron first into one eye, then the other, he held the faint face out, visiting a bit. He felt his own eyes burst into frightful pain from his head, as the same moment, unable longer to control himself, he uttered a wild shriek and dashed forward to seize the torture and fear, tear him a thousand pieces instantly in a flash. The entire scene vanished, darkness rushed in and fall to the room. He felt himself lifted off his feet by some force like a great wind and ball swiftly away into the space. When he recovered his senses, he was standing just outside the house, and the figure of Thorpe was beside him. The gloom, the great doors, and the act were closing behind him. Just before they shut, he fancied he caught a glimpse of an immense, veiled figure, standing upon his threshold with flaming eyes. His held his hand, a bright weapon like a shining sword of fire. Come quickly now, all is over, Thorpe whispered. And the dark man, asked the clerk, as he moved swiftly by the other side, in his present life, is a manager of the company, and the victim was yourself. A friend he I refused to betray. I was that friend, answered Thorpe. His voice was very moment sounding more more like the cry of the wind. You gave your life in agony to save me. Again in this life we have been all free, been together. Yes, such forces are soon as easy as exhausted, and justice is not satisfied till we all read what they sowed. Jones had, no odd, had an odd feeling that he was slipping away to another state of consciousness. Thought began to seem unreal. Presently he began unable to ask more questions. He felt utterly sick and faint with it all. His strength was ebbing. Oh, quick, he cried. Now tell me more. Why did I see this? What, do I, what must I do? The wind swept across the field on their right and entered the wood beyond. A great roar and air around him seemed fulfilled with voices and rushing of a horrid moment. The end of justice, answered the as so speak, speaking out of the centre of the wind from a distance, which sometimes is entrusted to the hands of those who suffered with a strong. One wrong cannot be put right by another wrong, but life has been so worthy that the opportunity is given to. The voice grew fainter and fainter. Already it was so far overhead with the rushing wind. You may punish or... Here Jones lost sight of Folk's figure altogether, but it seemed to have vanished and melted away. What beyond him? Behind him, his voice sounded far across the trees, very weak and even rising. Or oh, if you can rise a level great for forgiveness, voice became invulnerable. The wind came crying out of the wood again. Jones shivered and stared about him. He shook around himself violently, rubbed his eyes. The room was dark, the fire was out. He was so cold and stiff that he was out of his armchair, still trembling and lit the gas. Outside the wind was howling. When he looked, as he watched, he saw, very late, he must go to bed. He even changed his office coat. He must have fallen asleep in his chair. As soon as he came in, he slept for several hours. Suddenly he had not eaten no dinner, for he felt ravenous. 
Next day, for several weeks, and for several weeks, therefore, the business surface went on as usual. Jones did work well, behaved utterly with perfect prosperity. No more visions troubled him. His relationships with the manager became, if anything, somewhat smoother and easier. True, the man looked a little different, because the clerk knew him, knew, kept seeing him with his inner un, uh, outer eye promiscuously. So at the one moment, his broad and red face, <coughs> next to his tall and thin and dark, but if they were in some sort of dark atmosphere, team was red. While at times a confused the two sights took place, Jones saw the two faces mingled a conference. Conference a countenance that was very hard indeed to contemplate. But beyond this occasional challenge and the outward appearance of the manager, there was nothing that the secretary noticed as a result of his vision. A business went on more or more or less but before, and perhaps even with a little less friction. But in the rooms on the roof in Broomsbury, it was different. And they were perfectly clear to Jones that Thorpe had come to take up a bowl with him. He never saw him, but he knew all the time he was there. Every night returning from his work, he greeted by the well-known whisper, Be ready when I give the sign. <coughs> Often the night he woke up suddenly out of deep sleep, I was aware that Thorpe had that, had that last minute moved away from his bed, was standing waiting and watching somewhere in the darkness of the room. Often he followed him down the stairs, through the dim, ghastly light, Jet of landings never revealed his outline. Sometimes he did not come into the room at all, but hovered outside the window, peering through the dirty panes, or sending his whisper into the chamber, the whistling of the wind. But Thorpe had come to stay, and Jones knew he could not get rid of him to fulfil the ends of justice and accomplish the purpose for which he was waiting. Meanwhile, as the days passed, he went through a tremendous struggle with himself and came to a perfectly honest decision. That a level of great forgiveness was impossible for him, and he must <coughs> therefore accept the ordinance that use of secret knowledge placed in his hands and executing just, justice. <coughs> oh, once his decision was arrived at, he noticed Fulton no longer left him alone during the day as before, but now accompanied him to the office, a stadium for less, uh, more or less at his side. All through the business houses went, his wrist had made itself heard in the streets and in the train. Even the manager's room where he was, sometimes warning, sometimes urging, but never for a moment suggesting abandonment of main purpose, more and more so plainly audible. The clerk felt certain others must have heard it as well as himself. His session was complete. He felt he was always under thoughts eye, day and night. He knew he must acquit himself like a man. When the moment came, he proved a failure, his own sight as well, in the sight of the other. Now that his mind was made up, Nothing could prevent him coming out with the sentence. He brought a pistol and spent his Saturday after his practicing at a target, a lonely place among the Essex shore, marking out the sand as acrimentions of Major's room. Sundays they occupied it like fashion, putting up an inn overnight for the purposes. Spending the money, he usually went into the church savings bank on travelling expenses and carriages. Everything was done very thoroughly, but there must be no possibility of failure. At the end of several weeks, he had become an expert with his executure. A distance of twenty-five feet was the greatest length for the man- that was the greatest length for the manager's room. He could pick pick the inside out of the half penny nine times out of a dozen, leave a clean, unbroken rim. It was not the slightest desire to lay. He thought of the matter over at every point of view his mind could react, but his purpose was inflexible. Indeed, he felt proud of thinking he had but chosen an instrument of justice and the infliction of well-deserved, not so terrible punishment. Benches may have been some part in his decision, but he could not help that. 
but he still felt at times the hot chains burning his wrists and his ankles a fierce agony from to the bone. He remembered the hideous pain of his slowly roasting back, a point at which he thought death must intervene to end his suffering, but instead new powers of endurance surging in in him, and awful further stretches of pain opened up the unconsciousness seen further off than ever. Then at last the hot rise in his eyes all came back to him, and caused him to break out an icy perforation at the mere thought of it, of the old face at the panel, the expression of the dark face. His eye fingers worked, his bloody blood boiled. It is utterly impossible to keep the idea of vengeance altogether out of his mind. Several times he was temporarily bolt his prey. Old things happened to stop him when he was at the point of action. First day, for instance, the manager fainted from the heat. Another time when he decided to do the deed, the manager did not come down to the office at all. A third time, his hands were actually in his pocket. He suddenly heard Falk's horrid whisper, telling him to wait, and turning, he saw that the hand cashier had entered the room noiselessly, without any his noticing it. Falk eventually knew what he was about, and not to attend, not in, and did not intend to let the clerk bungle the matter. He fancied, moreover, that the head cashier was watching him. He was always meeting him at the corners and places. Cashier never seemed to have his acquainted excuse for being there. His moments seemed suddenly of particular interest to others. The office as well, for clerks were always being sent to ask him unnecessary questions. It was apparently a general design to keep him under some sort of surveillance. They were never much alone with their manager, their private room where they worked. And once the cashier had been gone, even gone so far, suggested he could take his holiday earlier, and usually was if he liked, as the work had been very odious of late, and the heat seemed trying. He noticed too that almost that he was sometimes followed by certain individual in the streets, a careless looking that sort of man, who came face to face with him, actually ran into him, who was always in his train or omnibus, whose eye he always caught observing him over the top of his newspaper, one who cronkated even waiting at the door of his lodgings when he came out to dine. There was other indications too of various sorts, and him to think something was at work to defeat his purpose. He must act at once before the hostile forces could prevent <clears throat> and so the end would come very swiftly, as thoroughly approved by Fulp. It was the closest, towards the close of July, one of the hottest days London had known. The city was like an oven. The particles of dust seemed to burn the throats of the unfortunate toilets in the street and office. The portly manager suffered cruelly owing to his eyes, came down perspiring and gasping with the heat. He carried a light-coloured umbrella to protect his head. We want something more than that, so James laughed quietly to himself. We saw him enter, pistol safely in his hip pocket. Every one of its six chambers loaded. The manager saw the smile on his face and gave him a long, steady look. He sat down at his desk in the corner. A few minutes later, he touched the bell with the head cashier, single ring, then asked Jones to fetch some papers from another safe in the room upstairs, and in the Deep in the trembling seas, the secretary is noticed some cautions for he saw the hostile forces at work against him, yet he felt he could lay no longer and must act the very morning, interference or no interference. However, he went immediately up to the lift to the next floor, while fumbling with a combination of safe, known to himself, the cashier and the manager. He, he again heard Fulp's horrid whisper just behind him. 
You must do it today. You must do it today. Came down again from the papers and found the manager alone. The room was like a furnace. A wave of dead heated air hit him in the face as he went in. The moment he passed the doorway, he realised he had been a subject of conversation between Hedgehog's clear and his enemy. They were discussing him, perhaps a lengthening of his secret somehow got out of their minds. They'd been watching him for days past. They'd become suspicious. Clearly, he must act now, or let the opportunity slip, or perhaps forever. He heard a voice in his hair, but this time, not a whisper, mere whisper, but a plain human voice speaking out loud. Now, he said, do it now. Human is empty. Only the manager himself were in it. Jones turned towards the clerk where he had been standing and locked the door leading to the main office. He saw the army clerk scribbling in short sleeves to the upper half of the door. It was a glass. He was in perfect control of himself. His heart was beating suddenly. The manager, hearing the curtsy key, turned the lock, looked at shortly. What are you doing? He asked quickly. Only locking the door, sir, replied the secretary, in a quite even turn. Why? Who told you to? A voice of justice, sir, replied Jones, looking steadily in the aged face. The manager looked at him black, black for a moment and stared angrily across the room at him. And suddenly his expression changed to be scared and he tried to smile. It was meant to be a kind smile, evidently, but he succeeded in being frightened. This is not a good, this is not a good idea, Mr. Webber, he said lightly. But it would be much better to look on the outside, wouldn't it, Mr. Jones? I think not, sir. You might escape me then. Now, no, you can't. Jones took his pistol out and pointed it at the other's face. Down the barrel, he saw the features of a tall, dark man, evil and sinister. Then the outline trembled a little, and the face of the manager slipped back into place. It was white as death and shining perspiration. You tortured me dead. To death four hundred years ago, said the clerk in the same steady voice. Now the dispenser of justice chose me to punish you. The manager's face turned to flame, then back at him to talk again. He made a quick movement towards the telephone bell, stretching out a hand to reach it. The same moment, Jones pulled the trigger, and wrist splattered, shattered, splattering the wall, splashing the wall behind the blood. That's one place where the chain's burnt, he said quietly to himself. His hand was absolutely steady. He, he thought he was a hero. Major was on his feet with a scream of pain, supporting him with his right hand on the desk in front of him. But Jones pressed the trigger again, but it flew into the other wrist, so the met big man, depraved of support, fell forward with a crash on to the desk. You damn men, men, shrieked the stranger, drop the pedestal. That's another place, with all Jones said. Oh, oh, still taking himself aim with another shot, the big man screaming and blundering, scrambled beneath the desk making frantic efforts to hide. The secretary took a step forward and fired two shots in quick succession, his protecting legs, hitting one ankle, then the other, and smashing him horribly. Two more places where the chains burnt, he said, going a little nearer. The manager, still shrieking, tried desperately to squeeze his bulk behind the shelter of his opening de- beneath the desk, but far too large. His bald head protruded through the other side, Jones caught him by the scruff of his great neck and dragged him, yelping out of the carpet. He was covered in blood and flopped helplessly upon his broken wrists. Be quick now, cried the voice of Thorpe. It was a tremendous commotion, banging at the door, and Jones gripped his pistol tightly. Something seemed to clash through his brain, clearing for a second, for that he thought he saw beside him. A great veiled figure with dawn shored, flaming eyes and sternly proving attitude. Remember the eyes, remember the eyes. 
his fault when I above him. Jones felt like a guard with God's power. Vengeance disappeared from his mind. He's acting personally as an instrument of the hands of the individuals. He defends justice and balance and counts. He bent down, put the blows close to the other face, in the other's face, smiling a little as he saw the charges efforts of the arms to cover his head. Then he pulled the trigger, a bullet went straight into the right eye, blackening the skin. Moving the pistol two inches the other way, he sent another bullet crashing to the left eye. He stood upright over his victim with a deep sigh of satisfaction. The manager wriggled convulsively in the space of the second shot and lay still in death. It was not a moment to lose. The door was already broken in, the violent hands about his neck. Jones put the pistol to his temple and once more pressed the trigger with his finger. But this time there was no report. Only a little dead click answered the pressure. For the secretary had forgotten that the pistol had only six chambers, and what he, he had used them all. He threw the useless weapon to the floor, laughing a little out loud, and turned without struggle to give himself up. I had to do it, he said quietly, while they tied, they tied him. It's simply my duty. Now I'm ready to face the consciousness. The fault will be proud of me. But justice has been done, and the gods are satisfied. He may know not the slightest resistance when the two policemen marched him off through the crowd, but was shuddering little, little clerks in the office. Again, saw the veiled figure moving majestically in front of him making slow, sleeping circles that flamey sword to keep back the host of faces that were thronging, thronging upon him from the other, out, other regions.